Welcome to On the Edge with Sick, the podcast where we explore individuals and organizations on the edge of social innovation through a design lens. We're your hosts, Nita and Sylvia, co-founders of Sick. Hi, and welcome. Today, we'll be interviewing our guest, Mebs Ramtula, founder of What's Next. That's N-E capital X capital T, which I believe is intentional. Welcome, Mebs. Thank you. Mebs has been a pharmacist, a pharmaceutical executive, and founder of one of the top healthcare communications agencies in Canada. He actually sold this agency, Ramtula and Associates, to a Paris-based global communications network, Havas. A serial entrepreneur, Mebs's current project is a social venture, which is why we have him today as a guest with SICK. What's Next is a community-based and curated digital ecosystem aimed at connecting transitioners, which they define as mid-to-late-career individuals, and self-described retirees to opportunities for flexible work, giving back, and lifelong learning. The mission of What's Next is to empower transitioners to create and execute a personalized longevity playbook so that they may lead engaged and purposeful lives into their next act. I love how you describe that, Mebs. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Mebs. Uh, We like to start start out our podcasts with a question, what does On the Edge mean to you? That's a very interesting question, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it, because it could mean a number of things, couldn't it? Uh, it could mean that you're asking, you know, edge being on edge of oblivion as a society, or are we at the edge of innovation or discovery? But I think in the context of what's next, perhaps I can talk about being on the edge, meaning that we're on the cusp of an incredible opportunity uh, in our lives where the demographics show that we're living longer and hopefully healthier And instead of thinking of this as a time of decline, we should be celebrating it as a time for doing some interesting stuff with vigor, with intent, and with purpose. So I think I look at it uh, uh, as a a time of opportunity, and we're on the edge of something truly brilliant in the years to come. Yes, I absolutely agree. It's definitely... Uh, it's definitely an opportunity of being on the edge of an innovation and discovery. I, that's the way I see it, at least. So to start with, we wanted to dive into your background, your passions, and your work. Can you tell us more about your professional journey? Well, how many hours do we have? Born in Tanzania. I was schooled in England and I went to university in the UK, trained as a pharmacist, and then emigrated to Canada uh, as part of the uh, emigration that happened of uh, East Asians from East Africa to Canada in the mid-late 70s. So I've been living in Canada for over 40 years now, and um, the transition that I've gone through is from pharmacy in retail to being a pharmacist in a hospital. And then when I got tired of counting pills and typing labels, I t- took a turn at um, trying to be a pharmaceutical executive So I entered the pharmaceutical industry, which uh, turned out to be probably the best thing I've done in the last 50 years because uh, I was learning so much. 
as a young pup and had the opportunity to experience different facets of business, of science, of uh, and, and healthcare. So I spent uh, many years in sales, in marketing, in corporate planning, and then uh, had a crazy idea one day, flying back from Vancouver with uh, probably too many gin and tonics in my <laughs> system, and decided I was going to start an ad agency. And uh, when I shared that with a friend, uh, he kind of quipped and said, so you're going to be against the multinationals and you think you're going to succeed? And I basically said to him, well, why wouldn't one succeed given the positioning that I was uh, aiming for, <clears throat> which was to be a more strategic communications company than a purely creative and creative meaning in the art and design. Anyway, that uh, gamble paid off, and over a span of almost 18 years, uh, the agency grew in numbers, in size, and in stature. And uh, 18 years hence, uh, having worked with some uh, many, actually, blue-chip clients, have launched many uh, global brands, we were uh, given the opportunity to join forces with Havas and their healthcare unit, so we merged forces, uh, and over a four-year period of transitioning, uh, we grew the business uh, substantially in Toronto and Montreal, and then it was time to uh, do something else. And uh, at the age of 46, I exited uh, the agency business, and somebody asked me what I was going to do next, which, quite honestly, I found to be such a silly question because I had all these uh, visions of uh, traveling and spending time with family and friends. And um, a colleague of mine who was a mentor, uh, David, looked at me and he said, Mebs, let me just give you three to four months. I think you'll be climbing the walls. And uh, I said to him that he was totally wrong on this one. And, but he was right. So after a four-month sabbatical of traveling around the globe, from China to Japan to East Africa to India and Europe, I came home. It was the middle of uh, April on a Monday morning at about 11 o'clock. And I had been to the gymnasium and spent actually two and a half hours, which was a record time. I usually spent 45 minutes because I had to get to work. And I had read the Globe and Mail, which is our national newspaper. And I checked my three emails, not 300, but three, mm -hmm. of which two were junk emails. And I had what you would call a panic attack. One of those uh, deep feelings of saying, oh, my God. What am I doing for the rest of the day? What am I doing for the rest of the week? What am I doing for the rest of the month? And what am I doing for the rest of my life? And that was a bit of a wake-up call for me to say that if I was really going to live another 20, 30, 40 years, this cannot be the life I would lead. And uh, for all the rational reasons, I should have been just fine. I had a healthy financial exit. <clears throat> I had a lovely young family. My kids were in high school. I was healthy, and I had really no reason to feel the way I was. And the defining piece of all this uh, the story was that I had no purpose. So I think that's kind of the transition where we are. So we started, <clears throat> meaning we, I started volunteering my time at an uh, incubator here in Toronto, uh, which focused on helping startups. And there I met a couple of uh, really interesting individuals. One of them has become my business partner now, Peter. And we just started exploring what people did 
when they transitioned from full-time work. And it was really a curious uh, uh, journey that we took. We had no intentions of setting up a business or, 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 or a network or anything. We just thought, you know, let's talk to a few people. So we did. And to date, over the last four years, we have spoken to probably three, 400 individuals from Japan to China to Singapore to Europe to the UK to US, South America, uh, Canada, of course, and uh, Africa. And we find that people who leave full-time work go through this transitioning uh, phase, which is actually quite difficult and for many quite traumatic. So let me just pause there. I love that you're a lifelong learner and you're always curious and always exploring. And I think that's how you found your purpose, which is really great. And it's good to know that like, as you go on with life, no matter what you do, you can transition to and into anything you want to do and you can find your purpose even earlier or later in life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the problem is that this transition doesn't come with a playbook. You know, when you're a teenager and growing up and, you know, you go, want to go to university, there's a certain path that you follow because you're, probably your older siblings followed or your friends followed or your cousins followed. Well, when you're a CEO of a 80-person organization on a Friday and then you're just MEBS on a Monday, <laughs> that is a fairly major shock to the system, you know, because you lose your network, you lose your identity, uh, maybe you even lose a few friends in the process. And and the idea that you now have to chart this new path in your 50s or 40s or in some cases 60s is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah definitely. Even in your 70s, you, yeah, you yeah. still have a lot of life left, especially where we are in Canada, where the life expectancy just keeps getting longer and longer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully we, we're living healthier as well, not just longer, but healthier. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, Mebs, what is the biggest challenge uh, you're facing within your industry right now? Um, this could be with your organization. What's next? I, I think the challenge we are facing, uh, uh, whether as an industry, it's interesting word that you use, industry. I kind of look at the longevity as a, almost a, a global phenomena. But uh, I think what's going on is quite interesting. I mean, the demographics are fairly clear. Uh, the entire world is aging, uh, except for maybe continents like Africa, where there are more younger people than older people. And when you look mm-hmm. at the projections in the OECD countries or the G7 countries, you know, uh, uh, we, we, you know, th- th- those numbers are quite startling, where one in four individuals by 2030 in Canada will be over the age of 60. <clears throat> and that brings a lot of uh, challenges and opportunities. And uh, I, I think what we are missing uh, in the industry, uh, uh, and especially in North America, and sorry to say it, but Canada specifically, is that we're not getting very creative. We're still, still looking at aging as a time of decline rather mm-hmm. than a time of um, exploration and experimentation uh, and living a full life. So what's happening is that, we, you know, most of the effort in Canada, so since we're talking to Canadians mostly here, What's happening in Canada is that there is no collaborative effort uh, among the stakeholders. And the stakeholders are governments, uh, policymakers, academics, uh, employers or organizations, and, of course, the transitions themselves. 
The second thing that's lacking, I think, in Canada is this realization that people over the age of 50, and I'm using a lower age because we're finding this transition, which we thought was happening at retirement or the so-called retirement age of 65, is actually happening much sooner. Mm-hmm. Now, COVID may have had uh, something to, uh, to, to play into this <clears throat> because I, I believe there's now lots of reports to show that a lot of mid-career individuals have felt over the COVID years that, you know, they've had to reflect back on their lives and what they're doing and have found that maybe it is not that important to take on that senior vice president job, which will include another 30% of travel uh, and being away from family uh, and maybe putting too much pressure on your uh, other half of the family members. So people are reflecting back and saying, you know what, I think I might as well stay in this current job and make a little less money, but have a better quality of life. So I think there's a better balance uh, between work and non-work, if you like, which is healthier. So you've got an environment in Canada where uh, there is no collaboration or very little collaboration among the key stakeholders. Number two, our focus has been, and in some ways quite rightly, on the late stage of life, meaning the 80, 85, so our emphasis on long-term care facilities and the elderly uh, is absolutely bang on. The problem is we shouldn't be looking at longevity as a life-end event. Longevity starts really the day you're born because you start aging when you're born. So we should be looking at this as a continuum from 40, 45 to 50 to 55 and so on and so forth. And at different stages of this continuum, different opportunities need to be leveraged. For example, we keep on touting that there's a talent shortage uh, in Canada and elsewhere. While we also say that there are a lot of people 50 plus that are out of jobs because of ageism and so on and so forth. And I think Canada's answer uh, has been more around immigration. Let's increase immigration and we'll fill those talent shortages. And while immigration is an important part of uh, our uh, workforce, um, I don't think it's the only answer to alleviating uh, talent shortages. And as we've known and heard and seen, there are people that come from overseas, newcomers to Canada, with uh, pretty strong uh, educational backgrounds, but they can't find jobs in their profession. So they're driving Ubers or working at McDonald's. Well, a surgeon from Syria or Afghanistan or India is not going to learn much about surgery driving an Uber or working at McDonald's. And how are we helping him get his registration uh, accredited in Canada? Uh, so these are all, you know, this requires uh, a collaborative effort on parts of all the key stakeholders to create an environment where people feel uh, needed, wanted, and, and, and respected for what they can bring to the table. So I think that's a major opportunity being lost. So that, that's a bundle of things uh, to answer your simple question there. Yeah, there's so much complexity around this issue, and you really illustrated that well. And we continue to see aging as a period of decline. And admittedly, yes, maybe the 90-year-old will go through some decline and will need some support but can we extend that from you know, 65 to 75 or 80 or 85? Uh, I, I think there's an opportunity there. 
Yeah, for sure. Even our, our second podcast, uh, we spoke to about menopause and the same kind of thinking that menopause is viewed as a, an, a decline, but really it can be reframed as an opportunity. And there's so much that that demographic of women has to contribute to society if they're just supported in the, with the various types of work that they want to be doing, whether it's salaried work or unsalaried work. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Mebs, I know that you answered this question a little bit, but um, what are some more key opportunities you see for design or design thinking within what's next? So I I think design thinking has so much opportunity. And I think the areas that we all need to uh, leverage uh, whether you're in, you know, in healthcare or in uh, hospitality or in the airline industry, doesn't matter. It, it is, I think, the core elements of design thinking, which include the idea of bringing together a multidisciplinary team of people, uh, is, is a brilliant one uh, because we may not have subject matter expertise in an area, but we all have an opinion, a view and perhaps have been customers or users of many things. Um, you know, when you're designing a computer, yes, we're not, I'm not an engineer, but I can tell you if the keyboard feels right or, or whether, whether the interface is intuitive or not. So I think that's, that's one aspect of design thinking that I think uh, has so much power. The, the second thing is the idea of prototyping and experimenting. And uh, I think this is, again, the world of business uh, tends to uh, feel much more strongly about, well, there's a right way and the wrong way. I I don't think it's a question of the right way or the wrong way. And I think we should always be asking ourselves, what if, what if, what if? And I think when we do that, we we come up with much more innovative, creative solutions than we would otherwise. And I employed that at What's Next, uh, and I've employed it in the other ventures that I've uh, been part of. Where, you know, if there is a good way of doing things, is there a great way of doing things? And and the last thing is to just change our mindset. Uh, Our mindset is always that, well, this failed. I don't think failure should Mm. be part of our vocabulary. I don't think we ever fail. We always learn. So if you tried something and it didn't work out, I don't think that's a failure. I think that's a learning opportunity that you can apply to the next uh, project you take on. And I think this is where <laughs> schooling needs to be uh, reframed. Uh, you know, when you look at little kids uh, before the age of four, they are, you know, uh, walking around and running around with a lot of energy and gutso, uh, gusto and uh, trying things, falling, pulling things apart. And then what happens when they go to school? They're asking a box, yeah, 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 the right box and the wrong box, and I think that's where creativity is lost at a very early age, and uh, and I, so I think maybe we should be reframing what uh, education is all about, and if you're truly going to live a hundred year life as many of our grandchildren will one day, we hope, then I, I think learning has to be, you know calibrated a little differently than it was during our lifetimes. Yes, I agree that that part of the educational system needs to be transformed. But I think uh, the mindset of adults needs to be changed as well. So it has to start with us first, and then we can change the minds of children so they don't look at failure as 
a negative thing, but as something that will help them grow. Absolutely. And I, I think you make a very good point because, you know, we tend to put all the emphasis on, well, this is what the schooling system to do. But I think that there is an equal responsibility on the home front, isn't there? As parents, uh, we should probably be teaching our kids that, no, that wasn't, you didn't fail, you just learned. So what did you learn uh, from this exercise, whether it be sport, whether it be math, or whether it be science, or whether it be computers? Uh, and I think bringing that mindset, even in the, in the home environment, would be, would, would be so helpful, wouldn't it? So, Mabs, you mentioned that Canada's sort of lacking in some creative work around supporting longevity. Uh, Where in the world is that type of work being done now? And are there opportunities for us in Canada to learn from those experiences elsewhere? Yes, that's an excellent point you make, Nita. Uh, I I think from my travels, and they've been extensive, uh, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily... I haven't covered the entire world yet, but I think when you start with uh, uh, populations that have been aging faster than Canada, Japan comes to mind. And there's some really mm-hmm. interesting uh, innovation being done in Japan, uh, which you know I think is worth looking at. And again, yes, there are cultural differences, uh, which we have to take into account. The other area where uh, I've been really impressed uh, has been in the United Kingdom. Uh, the UK, for all its problems has done an amazing job uh, in, in this area of uh, aging and, uh, and well-being. In fact, I believe the UK was probably one of the first countries to have a minister for loneliness in their cabinet. Wow. Uh, I'm told that position has been uh, since uh, taken out for some reasons. Uh, but yes, so they pay a lot of attention and uh, some really creative things have been happening in the UK. For example... Uh, I was part of a, a panel discussion in November in the UK at an event called the Longevity Forum, which has been put together by this amazing uh, economist who teaches at the London School of Business. His name is Andrew J. Scott. And he mm-hmm. brought together government, uh, policymakers, academics, uh, employers uh, together to discuss and look at ways of improving the longevity dividend, as he calls it. And he's written a number of books on this topic. And, uh, for example, employers, a handful of employers in in the UK are trying some really interesting stuff. This is something else that's fascinated me a lot. In my other two ventures where, you know, uh, intellectual property was important and, you know, you never shared your client list with anybody. You know, there was a lot of privacy and, you know, paranoia, if you like, about confidentiality. This space... Uh, Sylvia and Nita, is really amazing the amount of openness, transparency, and uh, willingness to collaborate is just mind-boggling. You know, we're all playing in a large sandbox, and we all have our little mini sandboxes in that big uh, park, but we're all sharing stuff with each other, and there's not this threat of kind of, you know, stealing from each other and stuff like that which is fascinating and so, so refreshing if you, if you like. Totally. Yeah. That sounds amazing. And I feel like you've embodied some of these things in your own community. What's next. So can you speak to some of the experimentation that you did with that group of transitioners? 
Right. Uh, so what started as a, as a curiosity journey has now ended up uh, in, a, in, a, in a community of about 1,000-plus individuals uh, around the globe. We have uh, community members in Japan, in China, in Singapore, Northern and Southern Europe, in U.S., Canada, U.K., of course, South America, and now Africa, too. And what we have been trying to do was the first three years have been spent trying to understand what, what people's mindsets are. So things that we've learned. Number one, transitioning from full-time work is a challenge and an opportunity globally. Uh, it affects uh, people in similar ways in Singapore than it does in Canada. The loss of identity, the loss of structure, uh, the loss of networks, it, it, it's, it's universal. People in different parts of the world handle it differently. Uh, in Japan, uh, I've heard that there are CEOs of uh, large organizations that, that have left full-time work on a Friday are pruning trees in uh, parks in Japan because that's what gives them freedom and that's, that's the connection they're looking for. Now, that's just a sample of a small part of the population. And I, I think at what's next, where we feel we can add the most value are in two areas. One is helping transitioners, as we call them. Uh, these are mid uh, to late career individuals and uh, self-described retirees. There's a deep need and desire to connect, communicate, and share. And this was part of our experiments that we did in the summer of 2022. We allowed you know, a group of uh, transitioners, global group of transitioners, just connect, communicate, and share. And we were amazed at the conversations that we're having and how many of them have kept the relationships ongoing after the experiments were finished. Uh, and, you know, the experiments were only for about eight weeks. So they're very keen to connect, communicate, and share. Number two, they love working in small cohorts in uh, attacking a challenge. The challenge may be uh, uh, within their community, it may be within their country, maybe within their city, uh, and it may be areas where they feel they can make an impact. And uh, I'll give you a small example. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, Canada has an incredible uh, immigration policy. I'm an immigrant, and I, I really thank the Canadian government for having such a liberal immigration policy. But we're not as good at as, uh, integrating them when they come to Canada. So we had one of the uh, transitioners in our, in our experiments living in London, Ontario. She has just gone and taken an ESL course and is helping a newcomer from uh, outside Canada uh, learn English, but not learn English in a McDonald's Uber way, but learn English in the profession mm -hmm. this, that this young gentleman happened to come from, happens to be medicine. And uh, the guy is over the moon. Here is a, a community of 1,000-plus uh, accomplished uh, individuals. And how might we leverage the experience, the expertise, and the wisdom of this global community uh, for the greater good? And so we're exploring various programs uh, at, at this time where uh, community members in small affinity groups, as you call them, might be able to help organizations, and the organizations we talk about could be for-profit, for non-for-profit, could be learning institutions, where we might go into an organization and say, 
you know, might we be able to help you create age-inclusive, multi-generational workforces in your, in your organization? Or how might we help you offboard your people that are, they have decided to leave your organization, whether it be retirees or free, you know, when I talk about retirees, I'm talking about people 65 and over or other people under 65. And how are you offboarding them? Because we spend a lot of time and we do a great job on onboarding people. Mm-hmm. So that's another area. But the most exciting area, I think, for what's next might be in the area of what one of our community member calls solving wicked problems. So right. if an organization has a wicked problem, and yes, of course, they have consultants that they work with them, but maybe it's a problem that you want a multidisciplinary uh, uh, view of from you know a global team. So what if four of us got together, an anthropologist, a sociologist, a subject matter e- expert, uh, and whoever else, and we looked at an issue, a challenge, and helped them solve that wicked problem? And I, I think, given the wisdom and the experience of this global community, I, I think we could play a pretty uh, effective role. So these are areas that we're exploring, and we're just in the process of now putting a stake in the ground and developing the product offering on both sides for the transitional community to connect, communicate, and share among themselves, and to see where this community might be able to help uh, organizations Wow, that's incredible. You've really thought through this and I can reveal that I was part I am part of the What's Next community and that I did engage in your experiments over the Thank summer. You. Yes. It was it was really wonderful to see a global group of people, so many people from all across the world coming together and sharing their stories around transitioning, sharing their challenges. And I I love the framing of experiments, right? Because it's really aligned with the design thinking process. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. There are and no wicked failures, problems. Just learning. <laughs> yeah. Wicked problems just for our listeners is, is a design systems thinking type of term that's usually used to refer to very complex, messy problems for which if you go and try to solve them, then you might create other problems. <laughs> so they're not necessarily solvable as a whole, but you can work towards solving pieces of them. At least that was my understanding of them. Sylvia, do you have any other understanding of wicked problems? No, I, I agree with that. So my final question related to what's next is where do you see what's next going next? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I think we are still in the embryonic stage of developing what's next, but uh, this was a venture that um, we decided that does not need to be, nor should it be moved in a hurry, because there's so much learning. Having talked to now three, 400 people around the globe, uh, we have such a deeper understanding of the issues, the challenges, and the opportunities And I think it's helped us uh, frame the What's Next Venture much more tightly today than we would have three years ago. But it is still a work in process. And so our hope is that this year we can launch something along the lines of what we've talked about and have our community tell us what's working, what's not working, how we might make it better. And uh, my belief is that What's Next will evolve every year and every turn we take and every opportunity that we untangle It'll be a continuous learning opportunity. 
And quite honestly, it's the community that will be shaping it. Uh, so as we come to an end of this, ep- come to the end of this episode, Mebs, what's one key takeaway that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I, th- I think the one key takeaway is that do not think of yourselves as being done at the age of 40, 50, 60, 70. So long as you're healthy, uh, be fully engaged in life, whatever that means to you. It may be taking a walk in the park with a friend, spending time with your grandkids, or doing some flexible work, or giving back, uh, or learning. And uh, just make sure that, you know, every day is a day of, uh, you know, uh, with intent, is lived with intent, vigor, and purpose. And I think if you do that, it'll be a very happy life. And then God forbid, but if you drop dead on a golf course, then so be it. That's great advice. Thanks, Mems. You're welcome. Um, if our listeners want to connect with you, how can they connect with you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, we Our website uh, is www.whatsnext50.com. That's 50 as in five zero. And uh, they can reach me by phone and would welcome anybody who's interested in the space uh, and supporting us and being part of the journey to j- join the community. And they can do that through our website again. And uh, we look forward to growing this uh, global army of modern elders, as Chip Conley would say, and uh, be part of uh, our journey, which is going to be super exciting. So thank you. Thank you for listening to On The Edge with your hosts, Nita and Sylvia. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or drop a comment and rating. Head over to sickhealth.ca to learn more about sick and check out all the links and resources in the episode show notes. Thanks and stay tuned for future podcast episodes with On The Edge with Sick.